as a friend, one thing that I struggle with is like when I'm giving support to somebody, it's hard to not just tell them like the classical easy things to do, right? So as somebody with like professional training, what is the best way to support a friend or someone we know? Yeah, um, great question. It's one of my favorite questions and it's my shortest answer. And it's honestly be there. Just literally be there. Do not solve it for them. There's nothing you can do that will solve it. Um, unless they're actually going to ask you, like, what do you think I should do? Or do you have resources for me? There is nothing that you can do. And even for me in my friend circle, like, this is what I do professionally. And it's very hard for me to like, not jump in and like put on my therapist hat and be like, okay, let me do all these things with you. I just have to sit there and listen to them. That's all you can do. And I think it's very hard because we want to make our friends feel better. We want our family members to feel better. So we automatically start doing and thinking of things that we can do, but all you have to do is be there, check in with them, ask them how they're doing and like, you know, validate their feelings. You are now listening to the next iteration podcast with your hosts, Fuad and Damien. If you liked the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple podcasts. Our website was built by face solutions, logo designed by Charmeni and music by Wonderly music. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the Next Iteration Podcast. Today's guest is Aruni Saldi. I first met Aruni when I was working at Wellsimple, and I got paired on a random coffee chat with her over Slack. We grabbed a coffee and went on a walk through Trinity Bellwoods Park in Toronto and had such a great conversation on mental health and burnout. So when I heard she was starting her own mental health practice, I couldn't wait to pick her brains on it. Today's conversation goes over how she got into the space and what we need to do to make sure mental health is inclusive, positive, and intersectional. Hope you enjoy. Thank you so much. I'm so excited. As are we and hoping to have a very genuine conversation. So I think it's like pretty late for all of us, like in the day. Yeah. I mean, like, wow, it's kind of got a bit of an upper hand on us. But <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, just hopefully we can get into a bit of that late night talk vibe. Um, absolutely my favorite vibe absolutely oh my god the, especially with the music you know late night drive vibes with music oh my favorite oh, yes so <laughs> I actually don't really know where to start with this but I'm curious to hear how you got started with the space like even leading up to like the pivot right so I mean I don't know if it's just that there were a lot of like you know the, the mental health surrounding the financial space and investing my crypto for portfolio has been hurting this past month so i definitely <laughs> oh, hear yes. how customers can be feeling that same way i don't know if that's part of the introduction but how did you start getting involved in the mental health space yeah and that's a good place to start i think so i've always known i wanted to be in the space like i remember in like grade 12 um people asking me like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I was like, oh, I just want to be a therapist. And like, even at that point, I had no idea what that meant or what the steps I would have to take. And I didn't really know, but I was always saying that from a, from even like, I don't know, when I was 13, I was telling people I want to be a therapist with no idea what that meant. So I, my undergrad was in psychology from University of Waterloo. And like, I think most grads, when they graduate, they're like, okay, cool. Now what? I don't really know what to do. Um, and during that time, I actually did another major pivot. I grew up most of my life in Mississauga and I moved to Calgary with my parents just because it was like something for me to do. They were moving and I decided to join them. And my dad has always been a finance guy and he's been for years trying to tell me about finance. Um, and I ignored it for like, as most kids do. Um, and when I got to Calgary, I started working in 
uh, a big bank. I got into investing. I started understanding the basics and I really enjoyed it. I really liked that side. And I kind of just kept getting certified and kept building my career. And I ended up at Wealthsimple and worked you know, as a startup for many years. But while I was working in these organizations, I realized there was such a big gap and people, everyone experiences mental health. Everyone goes through the same things, but we never talk about it in the workplace. And there's so much stigma there. And there's so much, you know, hush, hush kind of a mentality like, oh, you're going through it, but don't talk about it. But we talk about everything else. Um, you know, stats have shown that people are more likely to talk about like a family member who has cancer or diabetes in the workplace, as opposed to ever mentioning that someone in their family has a mental illness, which is bizarre to think about, right? Something that we all go through. A lot of people have this. So, you know, when I was just in that space and some, a place like Walt Simple that gave me the autonomy to kind of start talking about it, I really just went with it. I really just started talking about mental health in the workplace. I started emphasizing it. We had events, we had conversations. And from there, I realized that what I wanted to do was go into tech places, go into FinTech or other organizations and just talk about mental health. Because a lot of times the problems that the organizations were facing could have been solved much earlier on. And now it was always like a band-aid solution. It was always like, we have a problem, we have to solve it. Whereas before we could have just introduced the right things in the culture. So that's kind of where the pivot happened and kind of what I'm doing now in my space. So have you uh, always kind of been that person? You know, there's always that one person in a friend group that everybody can turn to, you know, with their problems, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a comforting presence to be around and just very reassuring. Is, was that always you? Yeah, I mean, not to like pat myself on the back or anything, <laughs> but- I, That's totally fine. Have... You're allowed to do that on the podcast. <laughs> but absolutely it was. Um, and I think I've always- been that person I still am and you know this is like again because we're in that late night vulnerable spot I can say this like over the years I've had to literally build boundaries and learn mm-hmm. not to just be that person and actually have relationships with people whether it's like friendships or coworkers, whatever it is where it's not just one-sided so it's something that I've actually had to unlearn how to do because I'm always like yep here for you talk and then when it's my turn they're like gone so right. it's actually funny that you brought that up because it's like part of the journey (laughs) yeah I mean it's it's hard because exactly what you're saying those individuals kind of fall prey a lot of times to just assuming a lot of that emotional burden from like a lot of the relationships in their lives and you know people are so consumed with their own lives they seldom give thought to the toll that can take on that that person you know and Mm -hmm. to be able to just constantly surrounded by um, not necessarily negativity, but like all of that, that, that huge burden, you know, being forced to um, help carry other people's mental health on your back. That's actually one thing like I've um, always wondered about like therapists and like psychologists, people like, or psychiatrists, people in that space, like how, how much of a toll does it have on their own lives? Like, do you have any insight into that based on the training you've had so far? Yeah, for sure. And I'm very early on in my career, but I have definitely felt the toll. So I'll give you an example. Like a lot of my clients are actually domestic violence victims or domestic violence perpetrators. And the cases are very different. This is in my private practice, obviously not in the tech world, but um, I, the stories and the cases, you know, they obviously do impact me on an emotional level. They do get to me, but I have been really strict with myself in terms of setting boundaries and 
really being mindful of where my energy and what I'm kind of absorbing on my time off. So for me, it's as simple as like, I don't watch scary movies or I don't watch movies that have these topics um, unless it's like educational, I'm ready for it. Like I avoid certain things. So I'm like, I know where I want my emotional energy to go. On my time out of work, I'm really focusing on absorbing positivity and like educational things or mindless things like rewatching The Office. Like I'm very particular about what I do on my time off to kind of preserve that. So I'm very different when I'm at the job and you know when I'm not on the clock. Okay, first question, who's your favorite character on The Office? Second question, how did you get so good at <laughs> compartmentalizing these things? Because I feel like I'm really, really bad at it. Like really bad. Like I think, and Damien knows this because over the summer I was pretty stressed at a specific workplace and he had to deal with a lot of that post podcast, you know, late night talk. So yeah, how did, how did you get good at compartmentalizing? But answer the first question first. I feel like the first question is harder. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, that's uh, why you got to do the hardest first to get out of the way, right? So I want to say Dwight. <laughs> I don't know. Like, yo, yes. Oh my God. No <laughs> one's ever said that. My favorite character is Dwight and no one ever says that. So like, obviously I, I love Jim, but like, I'm not going to say Jim. Like Dwight is the star of the show, right? Like he's incredible. He's his Absolutely. unique personality. Jim's kind of vanilla. So it's like a he's different podcast vanilla. altogether. <laughs> I don't know what this is about me as an individual, but I've always thought that Creed was kind of a sleeper as a <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's Yo, the David, best answer. This is done. <laughs> a partnership ended. Like <laughs> I'm doing a solo podcast. You can have your own solo. Bro, Creed is, is sick. He has the no, most, like, Creed is not sick. Creed what? is sick in the head. Like, <laughs> yeah, but think about like that. Like, what a life he's lived. You know, he probably has so many stories to tell. I don't want to think about that life. Uh, honestly, <laughs> Creed is like the person I'd want to meet at like a bar in a random town who tells me like this amazing story and then I tell everyone the stories and I never want to meet him again <laughs> like I just want to meet him like once and like hear, yes like, but you also story. have to have like 10 friends with you because I'd be yeah. so scared of Creed like, yeah <laughs> I'd only want to meet him I wouldn't meet him alone I'd, I'd be scared anyways yeah. yeah let's get to the second question <laughs> um honestly to compartmentalize it took a long time um and I just became better at monitoring my mental health to be completely honest like I and I will be completely honest and I've been honest about this in the past like I've had depressive episodes and when I've had those episodes I've literally been like I'm gonna do everything that my textbook has told me to do like I am going to journal and I'm gonna exercise and I'm gonna eat well and I'm gonna sleep well because that's all the things that you're supposed to do when you're not feeling great so during those episodes particularly I've just picked up the habit of always taking care of my mental health. So my rule of thumb and what I always tell my clients too is when you're feeling really good is when you should start building healthy mental health habits. So when you're down, you already know what to do because it's so much harder. You know, like you said, in the summer when you were stressed, it would be so much harder if someone said like, go take care of yourself or here are some coping strategies. You're gonna be like, no, dude, like I can't do anything right now. So it's better to do it when you're feeling better and you build that habit so it lasts you longer. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I honestly, I don't really have a straightforward answer, but I've just gotten better at monitoring it and like understanding, okay, this is what makes me upset. Okay, this is, you know, how I know I'm not feeling the greatest and this is what I need to do. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great answer. And I, I think first off, like nothing in this conversation space is gonna be straightforward, right? So um, mm -hmm. totally fine. We're, we're more than happy to have a long discussion on all these. But I think going back to what you said, like I definitely resonated with, uh, yeah, hey, like I can't do anything right now. Like 
I feel like a lot of the times it's like, it's advice, you know, and you're aware of it and you've read it in, you know, textbooks, studies, YouTube videos, friends have told you, you've experienced it yourself, but sometimes you just can't, like, you just can't, right? And like, mm-hmm. I think as a friend, one thing that I struggle with is like when I'm giving support to somebody, um, it's hard to not just tell them like the classical easy things to do, right? So as somebody with like professional training, and I'm not asking you to like teach a course on this or anything, but just like a quick <laughs> tip, like what is the best way to support a friend or someone we know um, in our lives who's going through like a, a period like that? And we don't want to just be like, oh, we'll feel better, bro. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Um, great question. It's one of my favorite questions and it's my shortest answer. And it's honestly be there just literally be there. Do not solve it for them. There's nothing you can do that will solve it. Um, unless there's actually going to ask you, like, what do you think I should do? Or do you have resources for me? There is nothing that you can do. And even for me in my friend circle, like, this is what I do professionally. And it's very hard for me to like, not jump in and like put on my therapist hat and be like, okay, let me do all these things with you. I just have to sit there and listen to them. That's all you can do. And I think it's very hard because we want to make our friends feel better. We want our family members to feel better. So we automatically start doing and thinking of things that we can do, but all you have to do is be there, check in with them, ask them how they're doing and like, you know, validate their feelings. If they're not feeling good. And like you just said, like, sometimes you just can't, like, there's nothing further in that sentence. Like, I just cannot do it right now. Okay. That's cool. Like just validate that. It's totally okay. We all go through it. Um, and I think a lot of people forget that sometimes like I'm not looking for someone to fix me I'm just looking for to be heard and to be seen and to be you know still respected regardless of what I'm going through Mm -hmm. honestly like I've like personally I've always been a very like logical person Mm -hmm. and that was a really hard lesson for me to learn Um, because I've always been like very analytical and just trying to be more pragmatic about situations when they come up like that and yeah, like people obviously get tired of hearing like the same advice all over again. Cause like they've heard it once, they've heard it a thousand times. And it's something that is so underrated. And it's probably, probably, probably going to be like the biggest takeaway for any, anything to do with supporting somebody's mental mm-hmm. health. Don't sh- like, don't just shout answers at them. Like they know what they have to do. 99% of the time they know what to do. Um, one thing I heard before, or like read it somewhere, I can't remember where, um, but it was simply just, if you're in that position, you know, ask that person that's coming to you, um, do you just need someone to be here for you to, to listen to you? Or do you want help with this? Like, do you mm-hmm. want for me to like, uh, help offer some suggestions and being able to, you know, just address it off the bat. I think it also helps people to kind of set the tone for the conversation so that, you know, they're getting exactly what they need out of it. Um, that's something that's helped a couple of times, um, in my life so far, like when I've been having conversations like that with other people, um, I, I don't know if it's too like prescriptive in that way, but I'm, I don't know if this is a dumb question or not. And like, forgive me, I've had like a super long day, but is there like, is there a problem perhaps with some people within this space that treat it too much like an academic discipline and, you know, not enough as, this experience that you're sharing with another person like with your with your like client I guess like on the uh, on the other side of the couch from you in what way just so I understand more <laughs> yeah for sure so you mentioned kind of how 
you enacted all of the advice or the 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 research or the studies that have done like uh, through your textbooks right um for a lot of things in life it's easy to just study it and then you know buy yeah. the book just go through that right yeah and for example like just to add a little bit more context to it is um for a lot of time like within physician spaces you know you were getting really smart med school candidates but they lacked that empathetic connection to have with with patients right and a lot of the time that like that places an extra burden on patients because of that because they don't feel like they're actually being heard or like they're being treated like they're just like another patient id number or something like that no totally thank you for clarifying um just to go back a beat i took all the advice that my textbook gave me when i was talking about my own mental health because i felt like this is what I need to do for myself. When I'm speaking to others, you need to be empathetic. You need to, every client is different. Even if they're coming in with, if I have two clients back to back and they're both, you know, um, going through experiencing anxiety, what's going to work for them is very, very different. And I tell all my clients that like, we're going to try, I tell everyone in my practice, like we're going to do trial and error. We're going to see what works for you. We're going to see what interventions work for you. And if it doesn't work, we're going to pivot. And figure something else out. So I think the same thing goes in your friend group or your family members, where, especially for someone like you, Damien, who is very logical, I think it makes sense to hear it from you saying like, do you need help? Or do you need me to just listen? Because they might be used to you, you know, saying things in that way. For other folks, it's much harder to kind of stay in that way and like keep it that black and white. Um, but I think a lot of people do just try to go through a checklist and be like, oh, do this, do this, do this, but it doesn't always work for everyone. So, if, you know, we are talking about how to help people in your life that's going through this. One thing is being there and the other thing, and, you know, we can pivot a little bit and talk about this if you guys want, but I think it's much harder for men um, to talk about mental health in their friend group. I think everyone feels supported, but it's much harder to say the words, um, especially, you know, men, of color, like I feel like that's a whole other intersection because it's not spoken about in a lot of cultures. Uh, and from there, like the what I would say is like just be there and do the activities that you know that person likes. And I feel like that's a very simple solution. That, so you don't have to really talk about it if they don't want to. And you know, if someone doesn't want to, you know, bring it up and have that conversation. If you know they like going for long drives, or you know they like going. I don't know, to the zoo, like whatever it is, your activity. Uh, to <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if yeah. people still go to the zoo, but you know, <laughs> do, do that activity. <laughs> um, I, I so went to the something. zoo like a year ago, so I guess people still do it. But anyways, um, <laughs> I think, yeah, I think that's a good pivot. But before we pivot, I just want to like um, mention a couple of things. First, Damien, I've, how I've heard it said is, do you want to be distracted by this or do you want to discuss it? And I think that lines up perfectly what you were saying. Like, if you like going to the zoo, like, let's just go to the zoo and like be distracted by it. And maybe they don't want to discuss it. Right. But yeah, I think, yeah, let's dive deep in that. Cause I think that's one of the things I wanted to talk about the most, obviously like Damien and I are both men of color. And I think that definitely in a lot of my circles, and I can't say this without like laughing because I'm thinking about how many instances this has happened in, but definitely in a lot of my circles, like mental health is if discussed at all, it's discussed as kind of like a joking matter. Right. It's like a way to like shrug it off and like, oh yeah, I'm good. But like, you know, not actually discuss it to the extent to which you should. And I've definitely noticed, you know, from my time, I have three sisters, you know, uh, from my time interacting with uh, women of color or just women in general, that they have way better support networks, like way, way, way better. 
Uh, definitely mm-hmm. notice it after breakups for sure, right? So <laughs> that's <laughs> a good example. The better support system when I've broken up with a girl. So um, <laughs> we, we might have to cut this out. I don't know if my ex this, but <laughs> why do you think that is? And do you see that trending like in a positive direction or a negative direction? And then I guess third part of this question of a two-part question already is what can we do to like help it trend in a more positive direction? Yeah, um, I think that, you know, to answer your second question, I think first is like, it is getting better. I think stigma in general, I think CAMH released a study that like a lot more individuals in 2015 as compared to 2008, when they first did that study, like 50% more people were like, oh, there's less stigma with mental health. Um, so I think stigma overall, I think the conversations about mental health, it's all heading in a more positive direction. And the way we can keep doing that is like by having these conversations, right? Like you guys have an incredible platform and using this platform to talk about mental health is already a thing that you're doing. And the more open and vulnerable we are, the easier the conversations get. In terms of, you know, men and mental health, I think it's just it's very hard to answer because there's just been like generations and generations and generations of, you know, we shouldn't be talking about our feelings. Men should not talk about their feelings. Go be a man, man up, rub some dirt in it. Like all these things that we've just heard for men who are never allowed to like cry or talk about their feelings. And if you are, then you're judged or even further stigmatized. So, and then again, the cultural aspect, like a lot of cultures, again, don't talk about mental health at all. And when they think about mental health, they think about a very extreme mental illness. They always relate it to, oh, you're insane or you're crazy and all these outdated terms that we use to describe such a large challenge that someone's experiencing. So I think it's just been very influenced by the generations and honestly, a lack of education about mental health. And then we do it all the time. Like you said, like even in our conversations, in our general conversations, I'm sure all of us are guilty of making jokes about it or like invalidating another man when they've tried to talk about something serious. And yeah, I think breakups are a good example of that. You know, if a guy is upset about a breakup, you know, or all his friends are like, oh man, it doesn't matter, blah, blah, blah. They just like, you're fine, move on. And for a girl, it's like, let's sit and cry and talk about our feelings for a week and then you're gonna be fine. So the support is very, very different. I know that group chat was hurting for right after that. Um, oh yeah, it, it's still hurting. It's been like four months. It's still hurting. So yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like the, it's so weird. Like obviously the pandemic sucked in so many ways for so many people, but in a lot of ways, it also provided a, a lot of silver linings, right? Like it propelled us uh, through this virtualization of healthcare. Um recently it's actually i think shown more shown more of a light on to like the mental health crisis and it's taken um a bigger kind of seat on the forefront and we're kind of in this window where uh, people are starting to change their attitudes surrounding it Um, for some maybe it was propelled by the pandemic but i think we were already starting to see that trend but i think Mm -hmm. it's it's something that we need to be able to leverage here and even uh I mean, like, it would be great if we can extend some of that universal coverage to cover like mental health and uh, addiction services, right? Um, it, it's so funny you mentioned that chemistry study. I literally read that like last week because I was doing a paper on like mental health as well because I was trying to make the case to expand coverage into that sector. But yeah, there's, there's, it's hard because 
even though stigmas are changing now and people are adopting better attitudes surrounding it, um, first, I think like the number was like 70% or so of Canadians believe there's like a huge mental health crisis looming over the horizon, like post pandemic. So mm-hmm. that's a huge number, right? That's a huge majority of the population that do recognize this as being very real. But the problem is that we don't have the scope of services to be able to accommodate everybody. You know, like wait lists for some of these mental health services can be up to, I think the longest I've seen was like two years long. And, you know, two years is way too be long, way too long to be waiting for something like this. Like by that time, who knows what your life looks like? Your quality of life may have deteriorated into shambles by that point, right? So it's something where we have to be able to increase the quality of the supply uh, and the quantity to meet, meet that demand as well. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I think, you know, not just in the general population, but in the eyes of the government, it was never really prioritized. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us in general conversations, again, you know, didn't focus on our mental health. If anything, we focused, if that, on our physical health and our healthy eating and stuff like that. But yeah, in the eyes of the government, in the eyes of where the money is going, it's very recently started changing. And it, it is a good change and it's going to take a long time. But Absolutely. I wish there was a way to service everyone who needed it. But as of right now, until we do keep researching and we do keep getting more funding dollars, um, it's still a few years away. I do see it happening. Maybe I'm optimistic, but, you know, it's still a long journey. Um, This is something, I don't know, maybe it's like a pedantic question, but I've always wondered, like, has this recent uptick in, you know, interest around mental health been like a chicken and egg scenario like do you think that objectively the mental health of the world has fallen on average because of like things like social media obviously COVID is a huge thing like not being able to go outside and socialize or do you think we have just become more aware of it and does that question even matter no I think it's a really good question I think it's a question that a lot of people think about Um, when we talk about these challenges that people face, they're like, oh, this is such a millennial problem or something. But in reality, the research has always shown that mental illness has existed, that mental health has always been something that for generations has been there. The difference now is, yes, there's more awareness, there's more diagnosis in general, like our generation and the ones after are the ones talking about it, right? Like only in the 1900s did Freud actually start looking into this. And although his, some of his theories were wild, um, you know, he's the father of psychology. So it all stemmed only like a hundred years ago. So it's still very, very new. Um, I feel like it's always been there, but yes, like the things that our generations are going through, like social media, the disorders and the challenges that come from that are new because it's a completely new challenge It's something that, you know, human kind in general has not had exposure to prior to this so it's changing but that doesn't mean that's always not like it's always been there it's just that it's evolved as we've evolved Mm -hmm. um i want to play like a quick little game i want to i want to play the game of it sounds like the beginning of a saw movie (laughs) (laughs) i want to play yeah i'm scared guess the economic impact game so what do you think the economic impact of mental health issues in Canada is per year? Are we both guessing? Yeah, both, both of you are going to guess. Yeah. Are we... okay. um, I'm going to say like 1 billion. What about you, Fad? 
Yo, now I've anchored it. Now he has that. to do it around whatever. Yeah. I, said. I would say 15 billion. 15? Yeah, 15 billion. So, um, CAMH was uh, also released kind of some numbers surrounding this. Um, per year, on average, that number is actually estimated to be $51 billion. During Ooh. the pandemic, that number was $79.9 billion. So this encapsulates all of that lost productivity as well, right? Like people are taking time off of work and like not showing up, but they need to be um, in addition to like all the, like the serious, perhaps like ailments that may entail. So this is, I mean, like numbers help perpetuate the argument, right? Cause like, you know, sometimes just talking about feelings mm-hmm. is enough to get policy to kick its heels and start moving. Right. So I like the economic argument is 100% there for this as well. And I mean, those are some, pretty stark numbers if i do say so myself um shoot what was i gonna say here i had a fantastic follow-up but anyways (laughs) i think the like we do need to try and do better because at the same time like even though the numbers are so stark even doing a little bit helps um and goes a long way right uh if nothing is done right now i think it's estimated to be about 2.5 trillion dollars over the next 30 years which again, like throwing these numbers out, even a billion is just such a ridiculously high number. Most people don't even aren't even able to conceptualize how much that is. A trillion dollars, like I, I don't know like how to start conceptualizing that. Um, so the the effects of the economy is just massive. So I was really hoping I could figure out where I was going with that, but I completely lost it. Fod, help me out here. <laughs> I guess. Maybe not. I mean, I don't know if I'm helping you out because I don't really think. But um, so that what, what that made me think of is, I guess, like, you, you mentioned that talking about feelings doesn't always change policy. Sometimes you need, like, concrete numbers. But my question is, is it a policy blocker first and foremost, right? Like, when, as software engineers, we're taught to always think through a problem, look at the flow, and figure out where the blocker is, right? Is it, you know, a policy thing? Is it... Um, an awareness thing is it an attitude cultural thing like where do you think the blocker for us achieving what we want and what is healthy for mental health and within you know our society in north america specifically in that context because i think that's what we understand best uh what do you think the blocker mm-hmm. is for that do you think it's policy related do you think it's cultural or maybe it's something else i think it's a mix i feel like you, whenever we have to think about these things like especially if i go into a workplace you know on that same beat like you have to create a business plan. And it's really hard sometimes to be like, oh, this is how much money you can save if you actually prioritize people's feelings and like your employer's emotions. Like it's the same thing where a lot of people don't want to think about it and it's expensive to think about it. So I think there's that misconception. And in some cases, you know, it is accurate that taking care of people's mental health does cost money. Of course it costs money. Taking care of your employees or your general population of it costs money. And a lot of times there is still so much stigma around it. There's still so much lack of education. It is an attitude thing. But yeah, the money is just going elsewhere. So only in the past, again, like five, 10 years, I think the research has come out to show, you know, the economic disadvantage if you don't prioritize it. So it's still very relatively new. And like, I think it's still making its way up and policies are being passed, but not nearly to the level of, other sectors or other industries because of an attitude thing too so i feel like it's all of it 
That's unfortunate because that means we have a lot to change. <laughs> you know what? There's a a, a low key uh, kind of powerhouse looming around the horizon, uh, and I, I'm I think this the evidence base surrounding it is starting to grow and it's become uh, very seriously considered now, uh, which is psychedelics. You know, like psychedelic assisted psychotherapy mm. has become a very real thing, and I feel like it's it's something that we've done ourselves a disservice by not crediting it like for this amount of time. And like, again, there's a long history of psychedelics running like Kevin Leary and how he kind of messed things up for all academics. And then it was kind of career suicide going into it. But now like seeing the incredible, like the, these profound changes people are able to experience through the use of psychedelics. Um, I've like, this is my hypothesis. I think that in the next, 10 to 15 years, it's like psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is going to become way more commonplace. But like, have you seen um, or even heard any of that, uh, any of the research or this, the, uh, the conversation evolving around that within like therapist circles at all? I'm not trained in it, but I have heard of it. I've researched it. It's something that I, you know, I have thought about focusing on in the next couple of years. I agree with you. I think there's so many benefits to it. I've always thought that as well. Um, my thing has always been to avoid self-medication. And that's where I think it's a little bit tricky. And I feel that way all the time. I feel it with marijuana. I feel it with the same way about alcohol. There's benefits to smoking weed and helping with anxiety and helping with chronic pain, just like there's psychedelics and helping you with post-traumatic stress disorder, right? Like it helps with PTSD. There's a lot of research that shows that. But my hesitation has always been around people using it themselves and not understanding dosages, not understanding the research and not really taking care of themselves in case it doesn't work for them. It's like, I, I view it as, because I don't really have a bias towards it. I have, I view it as any other medication where you need to work with an actual clinician who can guide you through that process. I know other therapists in the therapist circle, like that are a little bit more against pharmacology in general, wouldn't recommend that they're very against it. But I agree with you that in the next couple of years, I do see that emerging more and more. But mm -hmm. my hesitation is always like when people ask me, I'm always like, find a clinic that does it. Don't just go out in the woods one weekend and like do a bunch of things and then deal with the aftermath, mm -hmm. even though Definitely. people do that. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. yeah. I think also like, and this is a larger conversation sort of on Western versus Eastern philosophies towards medicine, because there are definitely what you just described, but maybe not in the classical clinical setting where, you know, there are indigenous tribes that do ayahuasca rituals and take you into the forest and, you know, have like a shaman guide you through each step and like really guide you through that process. And I think that we haven't quite reached that point. Same with like, you know, Eastern medicines in general, where they've been individualized and concretized into studies that are in journal papers and things like that. Um, and so maybe we haven't reached that point with those things, but maybe they do exist. Um, yeah. Do you think that or the, the whole field of like Western medicine towards mental health and not just medicine, I'm not talking just specifically pharmacology, but even like cognitive behavioral therapy, do you think that it encompasses like our current understanding of the world? Have we taken enough understandings from like Eastern medicine and Eastern approaches to this or not? Because I think definitely in like health we haven't, right? So what about mental health and like what needs to happen there? And what are some interesting intersections there? Absolutely, we have not. Like all our research and studies have been done by white men on white men. Like we have no idea 
what this looks like um, for people outside of North America or Eastern Europe or Western Europe. Like that's where a majority of our research has come from. And again, like very recently that has changed, but even in the seventies when there was like no such thing as ethics and people were coming out with these amazing studies that have like really taught us so much about human nature. Again, it was mostly in North America and there was no intersection of, of, you know, obviously there was of gender, but no one thought to do this. I'm like, okay, what does this really look like for a group of Indian women? Do they react the same way as these white men? And, you know, maybe they do, but they most likely don't because they've been taught completely different things. So our research has been pivoting the last couple of years, but everything that we've learned has been, you know, very, has been very, <laughs> I don't want to say whitewashed, has been very like North American. You can say that. <laughs> we won't leave that I'm out, like, even if you ask. No. Oh, okay. I was just no, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> um, but no, I just feel like there's so much more there. And every culture, to your point, has self-care routines right? Um, indigenous uh, folks back in the day, they used to do healing circles. That's something that they used to do to talk about it. Um, in Punjab and in India and, um, you know, villages, people used to go to the, the elders and talk about their problems. And the elders used to give them advice. And it was a very collaborative thing. It wasn't such a thing like closed doors. It was like, let's talk to the elders who have the wisdom, who have the generations of knowledge, and they're going to guide us. And that is like a form of self-care and that's a form of therapy basically for them. So every culture has done this and I'm not even talking about the pharmacology side yet, but you know, every culture has their own experiences and their own influences that we have yet to uncover. I just follow up on that. Like, what do you think are the most interesting non-Western or non-typical methods for improving someone's mental health that you've seen or heard about or would like to implement maybe in your practice? I'm still learning. I'm trying really hard to learn about different cultures. And especially like right now, a lot of my clients are either, you know, Canadian or they're South Asian, have South Asian backgrounds. So that's kind of where my experience is. I've always focused on having an anti-oppression, anti-racism framework in my private practice. So I'm still learning. To be honest, right now I'm taking a course on the indigenous history of Canada. Like that's what I'm taking on the side. Um, so just learning about that has been really, really cool. And it's been really eye-opening because it's just so, honestly, it's been like beautiful to learn about how nature plays a role. Um, I've always felt more spiritual and then religious and like just the indigenous folks and like the history that they have with, spirituality and like just with the world and nature and how much nature heals them I feel like has just as I'm learning about it I'm like oh my god this is blowing my mind because it's just so beautiful like their framework so honestly like if I had to especially in Canada I would want to introduce some of those back into practices and like use that kind of methodology with my clients do you think we become too complacent may not be the right word but too reliant on you know the the clear cut empirical evidence-based science approach that we've, you know, come to uh, love, I guess, in the Western world here, because like in the Eastern world, or even taking Western perceptions of what happens in the Eastern world, you know, a lot of it seems like, oh, woo woo, that's like all kind of made up on the fly. Like, this is just nothing. It's, there's no hard evidence behind it. But, 
you know, cultures have been using this for not only decades, but centuries, millennia, right? These are things that have been ingrained mm-hmm. in their cultures for time. And for, to, to think that something that has literally no difference would be able to persist that long over time, it seems kind of counterintuitive. So do you think that even if you were to try and make the argument to perhaps a clients over here, that they wouldn't really take to it? That's a good question. I think that there is somewhere a marriage, there is somewhere that compromise of science and I guess the art of dealing with it. Like, you know, something that's not science, something that you cannot do an experiment on. It's been passed through centuries. I think it's the same thing that helps us be empathetic. I think it's cultural, like all those different aspects of us guide our relationships with our clients anyway, glad our relationship with our friends. So I think that there is, you know, somewhere that marriage of, you know, we are working on stuff that is empirical and scientific and researched, but at the same time, this is something that I've been taught over the years and I'm going to go with my gut. So yeah, I feel like there's a little bit of both. I feel. Mm. Would you, uh, would you ever consider, like, would you ever recommend something to a client that you wouldn't have done or tried yourself which is a leading question to say like even going back to like the psychotherapy like bit or not like psychedelic assisted psychotherapy um Mm -hmm. i asked this because uh do you know who michael pollan is so he's like a relatively prolific journalist a lot of people look at him as a source of authority on a lot of things because the works he published he researches intensely and deeply for long periods of time so he released a book uh, a couple of years ago called How to Change Your Mind, which was, oh, there you go. Fouad's linking it. has got us. Essentially, you know, this dude, he's an old white man, right? And like old white men tend to be uh, more conservative on this topic, um, unless like they grew up during the hippie age, I guess. And like, you know, everybody loved it during then. But anyways, he was researching psychedelics because he, I think, finally decided to pay it some credence. And he was actually one of the people responsible for moving the needle on attitudes running it in the States. Um, and in order to provide this real perspective surrounding it, he wanted to try it himself. So for the first time in his life, 50 X years old, um, he had that experience and it was profound and it was life-changing and it moved him. And I think because of that, you're able to convey these things in a way that is so much more genuine and real like it's one thing to study something it's an entirely different thing to have had this lived experience surrounding it like i i can tell you i mean like even people who've had these experiences find it so hard to conceptualize and to put into words the experience that they had to convey to other people right that's one thing to study the color red i can tell you exact the exact wavelength of the color red but despite years of perhaps studying all the features of red, if I see it for the first time, would I even recognize it, right? Like that kind of argument. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounded like Lupe Fiasco lyrics. <laughs> you know, tell, tell me about the color red. I love oh, that. No. I love that analogy. One of the greatest lyrics. Like, that's so live. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Um, yeah, I feel like, honestly, I'm not sure if I have a straightforward answer. Like, Yes, obviously it's always better to, if I have gone through something that I can speak from experience, speak with confidence on, I know this works or I know this can help you. But at the same time, my brain is really different. My experiences are really different. My, I don't know, exposure and my reaction may be really different than my clients. So mm-hmm. for me as a clinician, I 
try to keep myself out of the equation. Sometimes it's hard again, like, you know, if I'm talking to someone who is talking about, you know, something as simple as journaling, I shouldn't say simple journaling is very hard for many people, but something that I have experienced with, I guess, like I've been journaling since I was like, you know, six or something. So obviously when I talk about it, I'm more passionate about it. I understand it. I can tell you what the roadblocks I've experienced. So there is that more personal touch, but I don't know as a clinician if I would need to go through it myself in order to talk about it. Again, if I have a really strong bias, I would try to stop myself and refer to someone else so I don't share my bias with my clients. But my experience doing something like this might be really different than if I recommend it to a client who does have post-traumatic stress disorder or something. And like they have a very, very different reaction, positive or negative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's just incredible this. I think at the heart of it, is that it shortcuts a lot of the self-reflection that we're forced to do, right? Because, um, you know, as many people report, it forces you to acknowledge certain things that may have been, you know, lying beyond the subconscious. Like, you know, you, you go about your life yeah. and for many people, they carry this unconscious burden around with them, right? Like, oh, I got to have a test next week. I got to figure out how to get this job. I have an interview coming up. Oh, I got to figure out like how to feed myself for the next week, like et cetera, et cetera, right? There are these innumerable number of little tiny pieces of baggage that we carry around with us and they weigh on us, but we usually don't recognize mm-hmm. it, right? Because we don't take that time to reflect on our day, to reflect on how we're doing, touch base with ourselves. Um, and this is a shortcut to it, right? People who, for example, like certain uh, like Buddhist monks, for example, monks, monks, for example, who have been practicing the art of meditation and reflection for years and to an intense degree, some of them are able to have psychedelic experiences, um, which are brought about strictly through that meditative experience, which is like that blows my mind, right? Like it's like this organic psychedelic <laughs> yeah. that just happens, and I I don't know, it's just there's something about this self-referential nature of this like this emergent self-referential nature that our brain has come to allow us to leverage that kind of holds the secret to how much we get out of life and how much we get out of ourselves even right like in in tapping into our relationship with ourselves but most of the time we just spend ourselves spend our time distracting ourselves from having to do that because it's an uncomfortable experience to have to go through um you know and that's the ego there too right because we don't want to acknowledge mm-hmm. our life isn't going exactly how we want it to. We, our ego wants to say that, okay, our lives are perfect. You know, our, there's nothing going wrong. If anything's going wrong, it's not our fault, right? It's the universe's fault or whatever it is. And that's just the ego trying to protect us. So yeah, it's so hard to, especially in the West. I mean, like our ego has protected us from so many things. There's so many uh, acts of comparison that we implicitly engage in due to social media and such. So we keep feeding our ego totally we'll keep feeding our ego constantly 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 and then you know again it contributes to that baggage aspect and it contributes to this i guess the best way to package it uh, encapsulate what i'm saying is that usually unhappiness arises when there's this asymmetry between our expectations and our reality right so mm-hmm. it just helps us shortcut that by forcing us to acknowledge that there's something wrong that there's something amiss but there's also usually something that we can do about it and if not taking the stoic take, you know, who don't worry about it. If there's nothing you can do about it, don't stress. So there's a lot that mm-hmm. I just threw over there. I don't know if you have anything on that. <laughs> I love that. No, I think it's great. And I think, you know, what you mentioned about 
we just get stuck and we just distract ourselves. And majority of the conversations I have, whether it's in the therapist chair with my friends, like we are distracting ourselves. And I often find myself saying to people, like, just feel the feels, like just go through the motions because that's going to help you more. Like distractions are are beneficial for the short term, right? That's why we do them. That's why they're so easy because they make us feel good. But we start avoiding that topic altogether and it's not really finding a solution. Mm -hmm. We're literally just avoiding it and avoiding it. And then avoidance is like a really, actually it's a very common tactic that actually happens with anxiety. For example, like if you have social anxiety and you wanna avoid going to public places, you're going to avoid that, you're gonna feel good. And then your habit becomes avoidance. And then you think, okay, as long as I keep avoiding things, I'm going to feel good, even though it's not solving your problem. It's not helping you get better. So that's the kind of same thing here. We distract ourselves. We avoid the things that will help us in the future. Like, you know, if your life isn't going the way you want, if you're not feeling the way that you want to, why would we keep doing things that make us feel bad? So yeah, I hear you. I, you know, just, I don't have an answer or anything, but I think I agree with everything you said because it's so common. Like everyone does it. And we really have to like snap out of it and be like, no, I need to just deal with whatever I need to deal with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry for throwing all of that at you. Sometimes I just go on these random tirades and I don't catch myself until it's too late. So I usually like, I wait for Fouad to give me the look, but I just, I was too, I was too caught up in it. <laughs> oh, there's no one coming. Don't worry. It's it's like, that's like story of my that's life. Like, Fouad, give me the look too, because I'll go on <laughs> tangents too. <laughs> hey, my questions are always six part questions. So I got to give myself a look here too. But um, actually, I do have a fatty question. <laughs> Speaking of which. Uh, okay. And hopefully this will be a little bit more concrete to answer. But I'm a very analytical policy focused guy. And so we asked this question a lot in a different version with startup founders that we have on the podcast, but I want to spin it a little bit. Let's say the government just instituted a new mental health ministry department, parliament, something, whatever, something like that. And you are in charge of it. And they give you, I'm not going to put a number on it because apparently this is a $51 billion issue. <laughs> yeah. So they give you a, a pretty big budget, pretty big budget. That's a technical term um to help combat mental health issues across the spectrum right whether that's children adults in the workplace out of the workplace domestic violence non-domestic violence like whatever you want right what is the best way to allocate those funds and maybe i can give you like an example like do you allocate like 10 percent to education and like start having mental health classes in you know kindergarten like do you like increase the number of therapists? Like what, what do you think is the right way in your opinion? And, and I'm not going to like hold this to you or anything when you're, if you, let's say you're in the government and I like show up at one of your rallies. No, I'm not going to do that. But I just want to hear what your opinion as somebody who's trained in this and works in the space in terms of the priorities in the space. That's a great question. Cut out like how long it takes me to think about this. Just cut that pause. Um. Gotcha. Yeah. Let me write that down real quick. Um. Honestly, like I would say a large amount of it needs to go into education. I don't know the number because I'm trying to think of all the things right now, but another aspect like, you know, needs to go into, I think, campaigns and awareness. Like right now in Canada, we have a couple, but like the largest one is Bell Let's Talk. And there's a lot of money that's raised there. But similar to how we have Movember, which focuses on men's mental health and it focuses on men's physical challenges that they go through 
there is something that needs to be done with in terms of like a campaign or something, I would try to implement that because that's the fastest way we can educate folks. That's the fastest way we can get information that's reliable and timely out there. Because if you know something more that's happening, you know, the research is going to have to be backed up by there, right? Like you have to have the right figures and stuff there. So, you know, thinking about how we can make this just like everyday vernacular in the way that when we speak to one another is by like a campaign like that. That's something that I would want to implement ASAP, like a month where we talk about mental health, just like we talk about men's mental health. And I'm so grateful that Movember exists, but we need to do that for all you know, social and political groups and their challenges too. Um, education, definitely, you know, um, from a very young age, we need to just talk about mental health in schools and need to have workshops for teachers. We need to have workshops for our educators to actually be able to talk about this without their misunderstanding. Because we don't teach our educators, we just teach the people that are in their classes sometimes. Like, I, that's why. For my personal business, I focus like, on managers because <laughs> yeah, I can do a lunch and learn for the entire organization. But unless your manager actually learns what mental health is and what a challenge looks like or what asking for help looks like, nothing's going to change in your day to day. So, like, kind of in the same way, I would focus on the educators and like how we can break their stigmas that they might be having. And lastly, yeah, lots of funding for, you know because I'm biased, areas that are close to my heart, like domestic violence victims, like sexual assault victims, um, like addiction. Addiction is something that absolutely needs to have more support. There's so much stigma about addiction. There's so much misconceptions about there. So, you know, all of that is where I would spend my money. I thought, yeah. Did I get a thumbs up? Thumbs up? Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, thumbs up. You're not getting the look. You can keep going if you want. Okay. <laughs> it's like, is that the look? Is that the look? <laughs> no, that's not the look. Don't worry. I, I think only, Damien's only seen it a couple of times. There have been a couple of times where he's pushed it a little bit. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a great answer. I, I think, yeah, it's not what I expected because I expected like, a, oh, let's invest X percent into this, right? But I think, if anything, that's a much better answer. Like I, the, the primary thing is changing attitudes and cultures because I think everything stems from that. We had this like chicken and egg talk earlier in the conversation mm-hmm. where we were like, oh, like it's because people are talking about it. But at the same time, like all of it stems from culture. If the culture is not accepting of it, policy won't change, right? Policy follows culture. Well, largely, there are also lobbyists and money involved. But yeah. Policy in general follows culture. So I think, yeah, that, that was a great answer. And I, I, I did, did not think of that solution whatsoever. So that's cool. And I think uh, Bhutan's the only country in the world that measures success with uh, GDH rather than GDP, which is uh, gross domestic happiness. So, I mean, like if you're pushing the agenda on that, you 100% have my vote because I'm tired <laughs> of this capitalistic society. Um, so we are getting close to time. And we have one traditional final question that we ask of all of our guests. But before we do that, and I'll throw the reins over to Fouad to ask that question for you. You kind of mentioned about how, you know, going back to that whole compartmentalization thing, you know, when you feel yourself kind of getting back in that rut, um, you feel that need to kind of like protect your mental health again. Uh, I think a lot of people struggle with that part because they don't have the strategies um, to help them build this positive experience to get out of it it's more so again like surrounding themselves with distractions right so how do you personally handle that 
what I have done over the years, it's kind of changed. So now I know I can keep track of myself. Like I can monitor my own behavior. What I used to do is ask my partner or my parents or my siblings to be like, tell me when I'm getting cranky. Tell me when I'm being rude. Tell me when I'm getting negative. Because for me, that was my indication. And now even in passing, someone's like, oh, you're really cranky lately. That to me is like a light bulb moment. Like, okay, I got to check in with myself. And for me, that's how it shows up. I'm super irritable. I'm short tempered. Um, I'm not the version of myself that I want to be. And, you know, 90% of the time, I'm not that person. So when that does happen, that's my indication. So I think we all have that. Like for some folks, it might just be like, you're sleeping a lot more. You know, you, you used to sleep eight hours a day. Now, any chance you get, you're crashing, you're sleeping during the day. And that to you is like a change in your behaviors. So whenever there is a change in your behavior for a prolonged period of time, not just like a bad day or a stressful week, because we all have that. But when there's a change in your behavior for a prolonged period of time, that's like an indication like, okay, why am I sleeping so much? Or why am I only eating junk food when I've been like really strict myself for like the past X number of years? Like I hate McDonald's and I'm eating it like four times a week. Okay. It's because I'm probably looking for a serotonin boost. Like that's what it is, right? Like it's just that change in behavior that happens and it keeps going on. And it looks different for everyone, but those are like the most normal ones where it affects your hygiene, affects your uh, sleeping habits, your eating habits, and your physical exercise. I mean, physical fitness, I guess, like your habits. And whenever I see myself fall out of my routines for a long period of time, A, I know that my mental health is going to drop. Um, for example, if I don't work out and I haven't been for the past couple of weeks, like I know that I'm not performing at my optimal level because I know it makes me feel really good when I do work out. Mm-hmm. But same thing, like if I get really cranky, I'm like, all right, I got to check in with myself and figure out what's going on. I don't know it's if that answers that you, your question. No, it, 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 no, it's a good answer. because It's and having that litmus test, right? And I think other people mm-hmm. are an, a fantastic resource of leverage there because obviously like if you're looking inwards, it's a very subjective um, kind of thing, right? But your your family or your close friends, like they see all of this and they're able to be that, um, that, that altruistic kind of resource to leverage. Right. I mean, and it's great that you have the humility to be able to accept that. Cause I know like when people can get into those frames of mind, it's easy to take the, you know, like, Hey, you, you're kind of cranky personally, you know, like, what, what are you trying to say? You know? <laughs> uh, so it's, I mean, the humility part is definitely important there. And just, I guess, have this sense of reassurance that they're just looking out for genuinely looking out for your own well being, Right. Um, yeah. And I, and I don't pretend like, you know, to be very gracious when I get negative feedback at the moment, especially <laughs> when you're like in it, I'm not just like, Oh, thank you. I've had an awful day. Please add on to it. But, um, over the years, that's been my indication where I'm like, okay, when I've, you know, calmed down and when I'm actually less cranky, I'm like, okay, let's figure out what that meant. But yeah, in the moment it's, it's very hard, but you're mm-hmm. right. Like using the people around you they're an incredible resource. If you have good relationships, if you have a good support system, which I hope everyone here and everyone listening does, you know, utilize them. Whether it's just something as simple as like, just tell me when I'm being negative or tell me when I start avoiding you. Or, you know, if you, if I'm not being super social when I normally am social, um, call it out or call it in, call in that behavior and just tell me when I'm acting a little bit different than I normally do. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. Love the distinction. Call it in. Don't call it out. Um, mm-hmm. Cool. So we want to be respectful of your time. It's obviously very late for you guys. And I have a Friendsgiving dinner that I'm very late for. 
So <laughs> I will take do the honors of asking our final question. Thank you, Damien, for passing the baton. And the question we ask all the guests before they leave us is, if you could put any one message on a billboard that would reach billions of people, what message would you put on that billboard and why? Great question. I would put two. First is Drake is the greatest of all time because I love Drake. So that's like the first billboard. Yeah. <laughs> um, the second would be everyone has mental health. Not everyone has a mental illness. And the reason why I would put that is a, there is a very, um, I guess not obvious, but should be obvious distinction. We all have mental health, just like we all have physical health, but not all of us have a mental illness, just like we all don't have chronic back pain or a bad ankle or something like that. And I think that when everyone has an understanding that we all have mental health, I think, you know, that's when we can get kickstart those policy changes. That's when we can actually start prioritizing it. It's not just a subsect of people that go through this. It's not just someone who is um, from a low income house or someone who is going through addiction or something like that. We all have mental health challenges. Sometimes they're for very short periods of our time. Sometimes they're longer. And even then it doesn't mean that you get a diagnosis. It just means you're going through it. That's beautiful. Beautiful. Can't think of a yeah. better way to end this off. Yeah, that was, that was great. Definitely going to try and see like what resources I can take advantage of through work and insurance and stuff. Yes. Unfortunately, American insurance sucks. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's unfortunate. But yes, use your yeah. perks. Use all the work perks, please. Like, whenever I go to any organization, I'm always like, take your PTO, first of all, just please. And secondly, like, you have hopefully at least some coverage to get take care of yourself, whether that looks like going to see a therapist or that looks like acupuncture or like, you know, getting a meditation app and expensing, like, whatever that looks like, just take advantage of it because um, it's only going to help you yeah Amazing. you gotta give yourself a fighting chance right like mm. mental health issues are real but if you're just doing the same things all over again expecting different results nothing's going to change gotta do the hard thing hard choices easy life easy choices hard life um, is that your billboard <laughs> it's a pretty sick billboard <laughs> i don't know like honestly Wait, I, actually we've never been asked this question yeah yeah tell me yours. I, I keep thinking but it. it keeps changing like i don't know yeah. do you do you have a solid answer for it I don't have any answers. It's going to take me a holiday to think of. Um, I have so many billboards by this point, so I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. Well, maybe not my answer, but we've been getting this answer like very frequently. I think we've gotten like three times in the last like six guests. Be kind, which I, mm -hmm. I love, like such a good answer. But it's, I was just curious that we've been getting it so much. Yeah. I think that's great. I, I think, think it's much needed now, especially. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The world needs more of it. Um, I think right now, as of as of whatever time it is, November twenty fourth, I think it would be um, a saying by Confucius: um, "Every he's like every man has two lives, and the second begins when he realizes that he only has one." Beautiful, I love that. This oh, is like okay, the perfect. No, so stupid. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, my answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're not gonna put this on the, on the <laughs> yo wow, okay so this has been my life motto for a hot minute like it's not even recent it, i had this like realization in, like 2019 and i've been living by this motto my life motto is don't cuck yourself and 
it translates to like if you want something you should just do it like never and ironically enough if you want to get cucked you should also do it but like <laughs> i guess that's you know, my life motto is like don't waste time worrying about it like trans- translates to, like don't waste time worrying about like whether you should do something whether other people will judge you if you're gonna do something just do things that make you happy and don't worry about consequences i lo- honestly <laughs> i love that I, I do. I don't know if you remember, like we had a coffee back at Wealth Simple and we basically talked about that. And I remember that coffee so clearly because we were just like talking about how we just are, we can't help it, but we're like so into the hustle culture. Like we just need to be doing 50,000 things. And you were telling me how everyone you've spoken to has told you like, don't do too many things. Um, and I just remember that realization that we're walking. We're like, why would we not? Like if it makes us happy and if I can still prioritize the other important aspects of my life, like family, friends, being social, driving my Beamer around, like whatever makes you happy and you can still be that hustle, like have that hustle mentality, then you should do it. So I think that is fitting from what I remember of my conversation with you. Amazing. I'm glad to see I haven't changed because yeah, that's when I kind of like for that term was when I was like formulating that idea because I was like a little bit nervous when we moved to California and I was like, oh, my mom's the one to move and like all these things. And then yeah. So yeah, and I, I I very distinctly remember that coffee. So I'm very glad you did too. That's what yeah of prompted me to reply to your story and ask ask for this episode. So yeah, I mean it went well. So very happy this happened. Yeah. Me Do you too. have that same verbiage back then though, or did that verbiage kind of evolve over time? The verbiage changed many times. Its current <laughs> version is no coffee. So it used to be way worse, but we'll keep it at that. <laughs> I, I don't think it. you said that to me then. I was like our first time talking. I would have been like, who is this intern? <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, I remember yeah. that coffee really well. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you could do it. Was, it was a really good conversation. Perfect. Well, this is yeah. a great conversation. And thank you so much for your time. Again, we're 10 minutes over time. And I know it's super late for both of you. Uh, but yeah, I just want to say thank you again. Like, beautiful conversation. If you like the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. Thank you for listening. Think you got it? Nah, we're on the next iteration.